Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. So, Larissa, you were responsible for the name of this episode because as soon <laughs> as you said these words, I knew we wanted to use them in a title. Yes, that was the only words I had in response upon my initial viewing of Nine. Just there's so much movie in this movie. Not in a bad way, just a lot of movie in a movie. Yes. What made you think of Inception after we watched Nine? As is the case with some of our episodes, especially the ones that fall under the Cinematic Icons label, we usually end up doing a little bit of comparative analysis <laughs> where we have one film or one piece of media that we're looking at and then we are trying to find connections within another piece of media that could be a completely different genre, could have been produced in an entirely different era. But in this case, the two movies we're discussing came out within a year of each other because if we were talking about a movie that came out 8 to 12 years into the new millennium, uh, focuses very strongly on a leading man who, as of this recording, uh, has won an Academy Award. You also have the presence of a wide-ranging cast of characters around this male lead who are trying to help them pull off some sort of job or task. You can definitely see cinema as an art form reflected in both of these movies. Uh, that same lead also has a deeply broken uh, romantic relationship with a character played by Marianne Cotillard. And at that point, we could be talking about Nine. We could also be talking about Inception, which the Marion Cotillard comparison was probably what mainly led me to realizing, oh, we need to talk about both of these, given how they are both about what goes into making a film and kind of centered in similar ways. And at least half the movies take place in dream sequences. They are, first off, completely different beasts. Nine is a musical. <laughs> it has an elaborate stage and set piece that is used throughout the film for all of these sequences that are taking place in Guido's head. And that is my very broad stroke definition of it. Caleb, I'll defer to you on diving more into it because it was the movie you brought to the table. I know you're a big fan of Nine. Yeah, and Nine is, is less of a cultural touchstone than Inception is. Uh, probably more people don't know the plot of it. So Nine is based off of Eight and a Half, made by Federico Fellini in 1963. It was turned into a musical a number of years after that and then turned into a movie by Rob Marshall, who was the same guy who directed Chicago. It follows... Guido Contini, who is this famous Italian filmmaker, and he's working on his ninth film, and it's going to be this, you know, big comeback to form because his recent movies have all been box office failures, but he has no movie. They start shooting in like nine days and there's no script. He has no idea what the movie's about. He's completely creatively blocked. It's like that nightmare where you show up to class in your underwear or you're supposed to give a speech and you're not prepared at all. Mm -hmm. and this man has everybody coming to help him make a movie and there is no script, no movie to be made. Yeah, he has dozens, you know, hundreds of people running around building sets and costumes. Judy Dench, who plays his costume designer, is like, oh, you know, I have all these lovely costumes. I'd love to know, you know, what movie they're going to be in. But yeah, so it's him sort of dealing with the stress of that and then also processing his relationship to the myriad of women in his life. His wife, played by Marion Cotillard. Um, the female his, cast in this movie is insane. Yeah, his lover is played by Penelope Cruz. Fergie's in it. Yep, Nicole Kidman, Kate Hudson, Sophia Loren. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness, I mean, just an all-star cast surrounding the lead, which Inception kind of mirrors. It's just a much bunch more. Of dudes. It's just it's the it's the complete gender reversal, except Elliot Page's Ariadne 
is not the lead of the of the film we can actually see a parallel right out of the gate even in how these two films are introduced because right out of the gate they are giving you hey here are these dream sequences as it were whether it is there's your beaches over- involved there are beaches involved <laughs> there's beaches and dreams and children in imagination oh my gosh you have the overture that's setting up this is how guido sees the world and the entire female cast is introduced in spectacular regalia yeah so a lot of the dream sequences that guido has which all the musical numbers throughout the movie are they take place in his head it's him imagining essentially what you know things would look like in one of his movies so instead of a literal dream more of a daydream yeah guido is played by daniel day lewis and he's in you know all of those scenes he's generally quiet and off to the side lit by like a spotlight or something but you know he's there watching it Mm -hmm. yeah or or he is in some way shape or form interacting with that particular character like when uh, either as an adult or as a child yes one example that comes to mind is when uh, penelope cruz does carla's opening dance number it's paralleled with in real life, her talking to Guido on the phone. They're not even in the same room. Mm-hmm. So they're having their conversation, and he's talking to her while he's being examined by a doctor and a nurse, and and then simultaneously talking to his mistress. Doctor, his pulse, it's racing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have, like, that setup of, okay, this is how we're stepping out of reality. The complete opposite of that is Inception, which you have elaborate set design right out of the gate with when we first see conversations between Cobb and Saito and then uh, we see Arthur come into the picture and Maul is there and we don't have all the context about her yet and then eventually we're realizing oh this is all happening in a dream and then we cut to the apartment and then realize it's a dream within a dream and just nine very much is showing you right out of the gate hey this is how Guido sees the world you come into Inception with a much more limited perspective and and very much have to, like, Dom and Arthur are telling you what you need to know about the science of the movie as it goes along. inception and it may come up at some point so let's also say the dark knight rises just watch out for any nolan projects <laughs> so marion cotillard may have been your main you know through line to connect these films to each other but 
you know, as Larissa's clever title suggests, there's so much movie in these movies. They're both movies about making movies, just in nine, it's the literal main character is a director and you're seeing, you know, his opinion and thoughts on films just through the massive set pieces in the movie. In Inception, it's Christopher Nolan as the director of the film that you're watching, showing you his thoughts on film through the characters and just like in Nine, these really impressive set pieces throughout the movie. They're both so extravagant. And I feel like I've been taken on this rapid fire journey on either one. Like my brain is having a hard time keeping up with all the information that's being shared with me. Um, visually alone, in addition to, I think in both, like in Nine, I feel like the relationships are more of this complex narrative where I am trying to keep up with where Guido is at emotionally and what he thinks of or imagines the other women or people in general in his life to be to him since we only really get to learn about them through his lens. Whereas in Inception, I'm both trying to keep up with what's happening relationally and what's happening with the sci-fi elements of the story, which I think is neat. I think they're both compelling in the way they build momentum. And keep you moving forward and wanting to know more and wanting to get to know the protagonist. Very early dream interactions between the male lead, the director, and a significant woman in his life who is no longer around. That again, obviously being Maul and then Guido's mother in the car with him, not 20 minutes into nine. Well, and it's interesting that so much of our main characters in both films so much of what we learn about them is relayed to us through their relationship or relationships with someone else. You know, we learn everything about Cobb because of his relationship with Maul and, like, how that all played out and how it ended. But we're also learning that through the eyes of Ariadne. I think it's really interesting how both of these films are, understandably, because you want a story to center around your protagonist, but it's really compelling how specifically women are projected through that male perspective like you're so in both nine and inception you learn about the women in the story with the exception of ariadne you learn about the women in the story through the context of the male protagonists understanding of them and with guido in nine you get to see his imaginings of how these women relate to him what stories they need to tell what they think about him particularly focused on his wife played again by Marianne Cotillard and then with Inception I was really struck by Cobb's line at the end of the film when you're sort of getting a better sense of who Mal is and how he says that you're not her you're a shade of her he says something to the effect that you could never be her because you are my memory of her you're never going to fully capture her, all of her personality her perfections her imperfections or any of these things that really make up who she was as a being and he explicitly states what Guido fails to understand in Nine, that all these imaginings he has of the different women in his life are a big part of what leads to so much of the strife he experiences in his relationships to those people he thinks he cares about because he doesn't see them in their complexity. He sees this faded shade of who they are and how they relate specifically to him instead of being independent, separate beings. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love that. Both Guido and Cobb come into the movie with the baggage of their relationships on board and just Guido's bouncing from conversation to conversation, from his mistress to his wife, and just to what extent you realize, like when they're going through 
like reels from auditions to what extent it's like, yeah, this is just how Guido operates <laughs> and it undermines a lot of his relationships. And then you have Ariadne's observation as they are trying to complete Inception that every time, every layer that we're going deeper and deeper into Fisher, we're also going deeper and deeper into you and we're not going to like what we find down there. Inception is definitely the one that's made a little bit of a stronger cultural mark. And it has that thing that so many wonderful pieces of media do. You are picking up new things every time you are going back and watching it. It does such a wonderful job of unpeeling the onion of, okay, Maul is here when they're trying to complete different jobs or different heists, and this is a problem, and we know Cobb's life is a mess. He can't go back to the United States. We don't know exactly why. Then we get most of how that played out in the second act with the elevator. And the elevator in some ways kind of mirrors the stage setting of nine because you come back to it a lot. It serves as kind of your lens into the dream space of the main character. The elevator and in inception serves basically the exact same function. And so as you're seeing all of these memories and moments from Cobb's past, you realize, Oh, this is how Maul died. This is the idea that drove her mad. You just don't know that idea originated with Cobb and it was what he used to get her out of limbo and how he knew Inception was possible because we're watching him attempt to do it for the second time, not the first. And this may be something that's already been said about Inception. A side note, I knew so little about Inception prior to this podcast production because I had not seen it before. But I was really blown away by how effectively the story emotionally in addition to like plot wise is like folding in on itself and each piece connects to the other pieces and comes back out and in and out and in just like the idea of that elevator going deeper into what Cobb's experiences are bringing us deeper into this memory that he has locked away which was about how he had affected a memory his wife had locked away sort of having to go deeper to be able to come back out happens both for him on his personal journey as well as literally of them going into limbo in order to come back out to reality. It was also interesting again on this viewing because you got to see it for the first time and then there were parts of it that I felt like I was seeing for the first time and I first saw it when it came out in theaters back in 2010. And also fun side story because I got to tell you guys this when we watched it before we recorded. Uh, I saw Inception, I believe on an IMAX screen visiting my brother when he lived in dc and inception ended the way it ends and then i got to hear my brother say i'd kill him but he has to make another batman movie (laughs) (laughs) referring to christopher nolan yeah oh my word that's how i feel at the end of a lot of christopher nolan films (laughs) i like being teased you both already know this but i do enjoy being confused on purpose because I'm confused by accident movies all the time. So I like it when the director's like, no, I want you to be trying to figure this out or feel a little out of step with what's happening on screen. Well, I enjoyed this viewing for me because, I don't know, this is probably the fifth or sixth, seventh, I don't know. I've seen Inception a lot, but I distinctly remember my first viewing of it being like, I don't know what just happened (laughs) like not processing a lot of the deeper themes and like connective tissue that the film had yeah do you what was something you noticed this time that you missed before just following some of the like dream structure more like who's the specific dreamer and like all the little things that are affecting you know the various levels as they go down 
and like even just how each individual dreamer like impacts the dream they're in Arthur is always presented as this very like well put together sort of refined man so of course his whole dream sequence takes place in this very elegant hotel whereas yeah uh, whereas Eames' character is seen, you know, he's Tom Hardy. He's this kind of rough, badass dude. So this is where Inception gets weird as you start to pick it apart. I think, regardless of which character you attach it to, there's still elements related to other characters that you know are there. Ariadne came up with each of the maps, or Fisher is the one who's populating it with his subconscious, where you get the different version of Browning in the second level, and in the second and the third level, you have him actively fighting against projections of his own subconscious. And so the characters are populating the world regardless of who is the dreamer in each one. And although that is set up well, again, as you're watching, like, okay, they're continuing to go for Yusef in the van in the first level. All the projections very early on are paying attention to Arthur in the hotel, and then he's continuing to fight them all the way up through to the explosion in the elevator uh, towards the end of the movie. Uh, You have... Just the way that one detail that I caught on this viewing, and I don't know if these two are necessarily related, but they do kind of feel like an interesting kind of setup and payoff to a degree. When we see Ariadne's first experience in the elevator, like once or twice, she's just immediately trying to go for the basement. Like, okay, what's down there? <laughs> like, yes. what, like, curiosity. Trying to, yeah, trying to go as deep in as possible. Like, nope, we're just going to cut right through it. We're watching all these things go by, whether it's the train or places they used to live. And I, like, let's go to the part of this that you have hidden away in the deepest spot. And then in the end conversation, even though early on we saw her creating a maze, and that was one of her first tests, create a maze in two minutes it takes over one minute to solve. And Cobb is asking her, okay, we are on an accelerated timeline here. How can you cut through this? How can our people cut through the maze and get where they need to go? There has to be a way to do that. And sure enough, Ariadne had a way that was built in that she and Eames and others could use to get Fisher to his father and to complete their job in the time they had. Contingency plan upon contingency plan. Well, that's a fun connective tissue between the two movies. I mean, because Guido is, you know, making up this fake movie as he goes. He's, you know, leading his whole production team on a chase as long as he can, you know, before it's like, okay there's no movie i'm not actually i don't have anything for us to make and the whole inception team are also just they have to make up this plan as they go along Mm -hmm. because basically their whole plan gets shot to hell as soon as they get there yeah literally yeah (laughs) i mean saito gets shot in the chest goodness yeah when we were talking about these two movies last night I, i think yeah i brought i brought up the idea of you can kind of see the parallels between the director and the next film and the criminal and the last job and just the the way that inception is a very well done heist movie and you kind of and you have leads trying to pull similar threads with everybody that's in their orbit and also again just to what extent the most depth by a wide margin is given to your director your main character your center of attention Uh, There was a really well done video essay from Savage Books that talks about how basically every character in Inception is a flat character. That they're not going to have an emotional journey. They're going to be the same. Too much movie in the movie for that. Yes. Yeah. There's too much happening. Inception is five hours long if you give all of these other characters close to Cobb a character arc. Instead, it is how they interact with him and and what they bring to the team as they try to complete the heist. 
is what matters and how they impact the film. And the story is about Cobb coming to terms with his own guilt and alongside that completing Inception a second time. Even Fisher, who goes on this whole emotional journey, you know, reconciling with his father and deciding to break up his company, not a ton of time is devoted to that. I mean, all Mm -hmm. of that's expressed wonderfully through Killian Murphy's acting, that big catharsis moment with his father. And then even at the end, when they all wake up and they're on the plane, you do get like a little... You can tell, like, he's thinking about stuff Mm -hmm. as he's getting off the plane and, like, collecting his luggage at the terminal. Yeah. To what extent he can sell a lot of emotion under the surface with just a look as they're all leaving the airport or just the raw emotion when when he's opening the safe in the third act. And it just, there's so... I I enjoy Killian Murphy and everything he said. Here's a detail that I picked up on. I loved, you know, when Fisher gets shot and goes into limbo. And Eames is like, oh, that's a shame. You know, this was an exciting job. I wanted to see how it all played out. They do everything, get Fisher back. He goes into the vault. Well, the vault door closes behind him. And I was like, well, Eames isn't going to get to see how it all ends. But he does actually open up the vault safe and he gets to watch that little last moment. So I thought that was just a cute little detail. Closure. Let's just have a moment to appreciate Eames as a character. (laughs) (laughs) Because, and we were talking about this yesterday too, just to what extent he's the bard of the party. The one bringing the, the perfect woman into the bar at the beginning of the second dream level. Mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. And then has like a grenade launcher mm-hmm. when they're firing out of the warehouse. And just everything he brings to the table in the final fight in the third dream level. And the constant bickering back and forth with Arthur is just like, yep, yeah, he's the bard of the team. And it is wonderful. That was something that really surprised me about this, about Inception was how funny it was. Like it wasn't, I wasn't rolling on the floor like a comedy, but I assumed it would take itself seriously in a way that didn't leave space for humor. I was really delighted by Eames and Arthur and all their back and forths. I thought that was fun. Or Fisher's reaction when they're in the third dream level of, man, couldn't someone have dreamt up a goddamn beach? Huh? (laughs) (laughs) With Fergie on it. <laughs> and now we're back to nine. Yeah. Well, well, there's that's another connection that's loose at best, but you can draw the parallels of just how early in life they were each set upon their paths. Because when we get childhood flashbacks for Guido, we are in the present day having his interaction with the Cardinal, I believe, mm-hmm. in, in the baths. And then we flash back to as a child with all these other kids and Fergie's character on the beach. And then you also know just from conversations that Dom has with Miles, Michael Caine's character. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yes. There are... He's in every Nolan film. (laughs) No kidding. Because Dom mentions just how early or or the fact that like you were the one that would talk... I'm going to paraphrase here, but you were the one that was teaching me about exploring people's minds and it turns out there's not a lot of legitimate applications of those skills (laughs) and as they're having their whole conversation and miles wanting him to finally get back to the states to see his family again i would like to circle back to the idea of there being so much movie in these movies i really enjoy how extravagant and bombastic these films are and yet how introspective each of them are in exploring the lead protagonist's emotional journey through these enormous set pieces were there any particular like when i say how extravagant this movie is what comes to mind for each of you of any particular scenes or shots um that you were taken aback by visually i have two scenes one from each movie 
my favorite scene in nine, my favorite musical number is uh, Fergie's musical number, Be Italian, because the sort of dream musical staging that's being shown in Guido's Daydream is Fergie and all these female ensemble members dancing on a stage covered in sand with tambourines. So they're like scooping up the sand and tossing it around. And it's just, it's really pretty and like visually stunning. And then I think Inception immediately draws you in when it opens with Cobb getting his kick in that first dream when they're trying when to get... When the water comes when in? When the water comes Pool. in into the sort of hotel club that Saito's dream takes place in. It's all, it's, those are two of the bigger like, all right, this is like something special in terms of like spectacle and set pieces in film. It's interesting that, and this is just an observation because this also is a way for the movie to kind of not show its hand with the way it opens, given how late in the game that is. It's like, oh, this is Cobb talking to Saito in Limbo. It's like, that conversation is in the final 10 to 15 minutes of the movie as everything's wrapping up, but it's the first interaction that we see. And you don't realize the significance of it. One, between the makeup and effects job they did on Kim Watanabe, he looks like a completely different character in the conversation that the two have at the beginning of the film. Also, he has guards. He actually has projections that he brought with him that are in Limbo, whereas I think with everything else that we see of Limbo with Cobb and Maul, it's just the two of them. Ben, may I borrow your DVD of Inception again? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Oh, my gosh. You will notice things on second view. And it was it was so fun to watch it with you and getting your first experience of this movie and just knowing that, all right, we're getting the mission started. Train comes through the middle of the street. Yeah. And this is how things are going. So much of what I knew about Inception was not about Inception, but about how it's been referenced in other pop culture projects which is surprising to me considering how recent a film it is because I had a similar experience watching Star Wars for the first time because I knew what happened in Star Wars not from watching Star Wars but from just watching The Simpsons and other sitcoms and I knew the top thing not from watching Inception but from watching like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia or Mm -hmm. so that was the first one that came to mind for me for any other Sunny fans out there. I think one of the first times I saw it referenced in anything would have been a very early season of Community, and I can't remember which Troy breakdown it is, but it's a crying Donald Glover just going, I didn't get Inception! I didn't get Inception! (laughs) It's so impressive that these films have these great big set pieces and are kind of a celebration of spectacle, but they do manage that like deeply emotional journey and connection with the main character there's also and this is a parallel to the endings of each film but they both end with your your lead your director holding a child or two because in the case of nine it's guido with a kid who throughout the film has been shown to be the child version of himself and that his inner, inner child yeah his that inner child that is necessary for him to create, to create and to be and to and to make a movie and then in the case of Cobb, of course, it's his two kids once he's completed Inception, dealt with his guilt, and able to get back to see his family again. And both of those sequences are a little dreamy. You know, there's a little bit of yeah. stuff going on. Because mm-hmm. in Nine, it's it also functions as, you know, a musical's curtain call. Because 
in the background you have the whole ensemble and all the other co-stars basically come out and take a bow but then in inception you know is it a dream is it real Mm -hmm. did the top wiggle did it actually fall why do the kids look the same and this is probably well-tread territory for pop culture podcasts but i loved the two observations that we had on it uh one being the michael kane is the totem or at the very least he's a (laughs) reference because you said one of the screenwriters yes came out and said hey one of the scriptwriters because michael kane was apparently a little confused on set and he was like, well, I'm not sure what is real and what isn't. And the scriptwriter told him, he was like, if you're in the scene, it's real life. Who gets to decide, though, the scriptwriter or me? <laughs> I think that a good question. I think it's the viewer. The, the viewer. So I, to retread the same old ground, this is my first time watching the movie. And my immediate reaction was that it was reality at the end. A distinction I find interesting between Nine and Inception is that in Nine, I feel like I'm less certain about what is and isn't real and less certain about seeing the world outside the main character's perspective, whereas in Inception, it feels less indulgent to Cobb than Nine is to Guido, where we sort of are placed in reality and left to judge based on the information we're given, even though things are all reacting to Cobb I'm not in Cobb's head despite being Mm -hmm. in Cobb's head (laughs) does that make sense yeah yeah Yeah. the other conversation that we had was the fact that the top isn't necessarily Cobb's totem it was Maul's Mm -hmm. and that Cobb's totem in fact might actually be his wedding ring Mm -hmm. or it's never referenced because the smart thing to do with the totem is not tell anybody or at the very least not let anyone interact with it so it can't be recreated on you that spinning top at the end also can symbolize closure can symbolize i mean it's maul's connection to Cobb at that point it's all four members of the family back together again but it's after Cobb is again they've they've had that conversation in limbo we, we had our time we did grow old together and just to what extent him getting back to his family is not just the completion of the mission but also brings matters to a close with everything that ariadne saw in the elevator like these memories are no longer eating him at him anymore he no longer has that prison he's able to let them go yeah it's the first time we see him spin the top and walk away from it right Mm -hmm. because the top is even alluded to as being part of maul's the memories that maul locked away and the top is also connected to Cobb locking away the memories of locking away (laughs) maul's memories or incepting maul then seeing him spin the top and then walk away without concern for whether or not it's real, I think affirms how grounded he is in this reality being reality. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why Inception you know, has remained such a popular topic of discussion in pop culture is because of the you know, ambiguity of the ending. Because Saito sees Cobb use the top earlier in the film. When they first recruit Yusuf, Cobb tries out the sedative. You know, after he wakes up from the dream, he runs to the bathroom and immediately tries spinning his top and drops it and picks it up. But Saito sees that whole thing. So maybe he is trapped down there in limbo and Saito has, you know, he knows about his totem so he can use that to trick him. Why would Saito trick him? Vengeance? Or he's crazy? Because mm. their brain turns to scrambled egg, as Eames says. Yeah. And Saito's another good example of, again, the, the quirks and the humor and just so many wonderful little moments that he's a part of whether it's the i bought the airline when they're trying to figure out the logistics of how to get to fisher on a plane or the first time we hear the melody of the dream is collapsing in the beginning of the movie when he says or that we are actually asleep 
and or however he phrases it it's after he has said that that okay we're in the breakdown of this entire scene inception is famous for all of the main characters kind of fit the role of a production crew for a film Cobb is the director ariadne is the writer saito would be the producer and i love that there's a lot of similarities between him and the producer character in nine because guido has you know this older guy who dresses very well has you know very well kept facial hair just like saito but they do very similar things like a businessman yeah businessman saito buys the airline Guido's producer finds him at the spa he runs away to and brings his entire production crew to him. <laughs> we took the production crew and pushed it we somewhere brought else. brought them to you. Okay, how many of those parallels can we make? That is an interesting idea because that brings us back to the topic of how these movies are not just a lot of movie, but are, like, with nine more explicitly so, but are both about making movies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The act of inception they do in the movie is structured like a three-act film. The first layer of the dream is the inciting incident. Yeah. The second layer, you know, expands on that. And then the third layer is the climax, which actually gets the idea to stick in Fisher's mind. Yeah. Marianne Cotillard's in the exact same spot in both movies. Yeah. The love interest that the lead has to let go. Ariadne would probably be Judy Dench. That would be the the parallel. I'm stuck on what you said just now about the three-act structure in Fisher. So is Inception making an argument that film exists to through these layers of story, invite viewers into ideas that they couldn't have access to otherwise if explicitly told? Well, we're sitting here talking about the movie, so... Yeah. Well, and also we always... Would we have done that? I mean... Yeah. I mean, like, inviting... I'm thinking more thematically. Like, if you walk away believing something or thinking about something that you weren't thinking prior to watching the film. That's a connection I see between what's happening literally in the story of Inception and if we're looking at it through the lens of being a movie about movie making, then just like they're trying to delve into these other worlds and asking people to bring their subconscious, like their personal reaction to the information they're being given to lead them to believe or to think or to move differently in the world, I would argue that depending on the writer or director or filmmaker, that that's what a lot of stories explicitly exist to do, right? Because one of the most important questions you're always asking is, how does this make me feel? And the goal in Inception is an emotional catharsis. They're trying to get Fisher to change the way that he feels about something, and then that will inform everything else that will come after it. Well, and that's just good filmmaking. I love that conversation they have when they're talking about that idea of Incepting Fisher, and they're like, okay, I want to break up my father's big company. They're like, well, that's not that doesn't work because there's no connection to it. You have to break it down to something more emotional. Accessible. Yeah. Focus on the relationship with the father and so on. Yeah. Just like good, simple storytelling. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I'm a sucker for like a good father son relationship in media. Like that's the quickest way to get to my heartstrings. I don't know if the comparative analysis is going to hold up quite as well, like going character by character. Probably not. But you could wind up applying ariadne in a few different places because like she's also the one that can kind of get through to Cobb and to get him to see like hey you need to tell everyone else this is what we're up against like she's done through her curiosity she's learned enough to know what they're truly up against and trying to pull off inception and you have a character like claudia in nine who's breaking through the facade of how 
Guido sees the world. And she is built yeah. up so much throughout the movie because we keep hearing. Yeah, she's five, in it for like five yeah. minutes, but she's talked about the entire film. Yeah. Nine is very much about Guido kind of having to stop going through the motions and figure out, okay, and how does this whole thing actually work? Because it's the definition of dysfunction mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout most of the film. And then in the case of Inception, again, it's that idea of that one last job, that this is what we have to do and then I'm done. This is how I'm going to get out. Just like in Fast Five, (laughs) the fifth installment of the Fast and Furious franchise. Everything is Fast and Furious. You asked the two-scene question earlier, Larissa. Should you and I also answer it? Because Caleb had very... You had two very good answers for yours. I will think for a moment. You took mine for Inception. That's okay. You can have the same one. I think that's one of the most iconic shots that, you know, the water. That was when I said, wow, this movie must have cost a lot of money. Christopher Nolan had made two successful Batman movies at that point, so he could basically do whatever he wanted. This is one that so many people come back to in Inception, but I think it's really true for realizing, okay, yeah, they might be able to pull this off, would just be the set piece in the hotel once their plan goes into motion with the Mr. Charles Gambit because they're getting Fisher to their side. They are at that point heading down to the next dream level. And then once everything starts going wonky with gravity, you get the iconic hallway scene as Arthur is fighting off projections and then watching him problem solve. How in the world are you going to create a kick if you don't have gravity and just everything that plays out there? Just yeah. the way the way that that is simultaneously a compelling piece on its own. And, like visually? And, yeah. And also amazing connective tissue for just the van slowly falling <laughs> into the river as we keep cutting back to it. Yes. In and the, the third falls act. For like half an hour. Yeah. I don't know why. But for some reason, before in watching Inception, I knew how the hallway scene in Inception was made. I don't know if it's just my general enjoyment of seeking information about film production because I find it fascinating. But I knew that they had built a hallway and then literally turned the box that the hallway was. And so I had a pretty big expectation going into viewing the hallway scene itself and it plays out so quickly it plays out so quick i was like i couldn't even, I, did it happen did it happen yet is this it <laughs> so i enjoy i think that i said as we watched it multiple times i was like oh, the hallway scene every time we were in a hallway and i'm still not 100 sure which one was the hallway scene <laughs> but it's still pretty neat something else i noticed on this viewing was in some ways, how Arthur and Eames kind of reflect one another because they basically pull off the same move to dispatch an enemy. And that's the fall first, grab the gun, shoot him before they come down because Arthur does it off of the bed at the end of the hallway scene. And then Eames falls down a slope after a gun has fallen down. He gets it and then the projection that goes for him, he's able to take out before the fight goes any further. The hallway scene was one scene down, three to go. One more for me and two for you. Unless we both want to claim the hallway scene. I don't think... The whole movie. Just the pick whole the whole movie, Larissa. Yes, the whole... There's so much movie in the movie. I'm going to agree with Caleb, but not just for what the Be Italian dance number is, but also how it's set up. Because whether it's the presence of a Catholic cardinal and their conversation in this elaborate underground steam bath that it's like goodness yeah 
the things you can find in Italy. And this is just where they're having this conversation. And then that it's also diving into his past and just, just so many different ways that of course, be Italian is at the core of who Guido really is. Like just to, to what extent that whole piece works, the musical number, but then everything that is done to set it up, I appreciate as well. Well, I love that he goes to the Cardinal looking for guidance. And as soon as the Cardinal starts saying, you know, don't put all this immoral filth in your films, like teach people to be good people. He just ducks his head under the water and is like, this is not, I'm not listening to this. And yeah, then you go into that whole dream sequence. So he doesn't think he has a responsibility to impart moral lessons to his viewer? No, and that might be something that changes by the end of the film. Because the movie he's making at the end seemed like, I mean, he says it's going to be a movie about a man trying to win his wife back. So you assume it's probably going to be less, not risque. More sincere and human. Because if if we can agree, and I don't know if I actually think this or not, if we can agree that Guido's journey is to be one of going from films being this sprawling, beautiful, but maybe a meaningless journey to one of becoming a medium where you impart values and moral lessons. If Guido's going on a journey to learn the importance of being responsible about imparting lessons onto people, isn't Cobb also going on a journey of reckoning with what it meant to incept his wife and put this idea in her head? You could argue that they're both going through a journey of taking responsibility for what ideas they impart onto other people through their work of choice, whether that's storytelling quite literally through directing or literally putting ideas in other people's heads through dreamscapes. That is a very strong connection. And it's interesting, you know, because they're criticized for the decisions they've made previously throughout the film. Arthur, he's like, well, Cobb spends a lot of time doing things he says not to do. He has all these rules, but he doesn't care, you know, as long as it gets with him what he wants in the end. And Guido's kind of been the same way. You know, he just barges through his life, you know, doing things the way he does it without any regard for the impact it has for those around him. He struggles to see other people as people. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, when you go to tell a story, the stories that have been poured into you are going to come out. Mm. <laughs> and that's everything that makes up Guido's personality and that's every part of the past that Cobb has tried to lock away just comes spilling into the dreams. You cannot deny the reality of your own subconscious Mm -hmm. through memories, right? They're Mm -hmm. both about being through memories. Well, they both tear down the past, literally in the film. You know, Guido tears down the movie set and that whole big projection screen that they were showing stuff on. These ideas of what could be or Mm -hmm. what was. And Cobb's False reality. Yeah, dreamscape world that he built with Maul is literally crumbling when they finally get down to limbo. Yeah. Ben, I'm so, so intrigued by you drawing the connection between Nine and Inception. Because I'll admit, when you first noted it, I was like, I've never seen Inception, but I don't know. <laughs> and then we watched it, and I was like, I was fully wrong to be at all skeptical because this is almost the same movie, but different. <laughs> well, they, In a lot of ways, yeah. Well, and they come out of it like... And this is because, again, comparative analysis breaks down once you start getting into some of the specifics because, like, Guido could, in theory, get Luisa back. And that could feasibly happen. And regardless of whether or not it actually would, 
he is setting to making his next piece an authentic story about a man trying to win back his wife. He's very much owning the mistakes he's made in that regard. He's grounding himself in reality versus living in the dream of what he thinks he wants or what he thinks things should be. Yeah. And, And that's why I keep going back to his conversation with Claudia and just the way that it's like, okay, how you see the world around you is this isn't who I am takes the wig off the, you know, like the, just, it's his first opportunity to be real with another human being for the first time in a long time it seems just again with all the interactions we've seen beforehand but then also with the way the third act plays out like you can't undo the mistakes you've made before and the relationship he has with Louisa is crumbling for understandable reasons and Cobb is in a similar spot with the exception of the fact that the door is permanently closed in terms of ever truly having his relationship back, but it's coming to terms with the fact that we had our time. They were able to grow old together in limbo. And even though the way things ultimately ended was horrible, it's coming to terms with that owning the mistake and coming back to live in reality. Yeah, no, there are so many <laughs> parallels to be made between these two characters, between their journeys. And Marianne Cotillard happens to be a hilarious piece of connective tissue between them, ending up in a very similar part as it relates to each film's protagonist. I wonder what that was like for her as an actress. To go from... She's not really playing a full person for much of Nine. You could argue that there are glimpses, like we debated this when we watched it, whether or not that was her and her journey and her perspective um, when she sings her musical numbers, Mm -hmm. or if that was limited to Guido's imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And then to go from that to being a character who... Is literally Cobb's interpretation of his wife. Yes, what exists in his memory or in his subconscious of her. Yeah, you're playing this character but it's not actually this character it's a fake version of this character mm-hmm. someone's she... imagining you're imagining of someone's imagining of this made up person and then she gets Miranda Tate in The Dark Knight Rises who obviously turns out to be Talia al Ghul I do like how both of these main characters are like very masculine men I mean Guido especially is presented in a very traditional Italian idea of masculinity he's a womanizer you know he kind of does whatever he wants he's a tortured creative He's a tortured creative. Cobb is the same. I mean, Cobb also has that, you know, masculine, you have to have unprocessed trauma in your life. And he's also like a leader. And But they use their support network to like help them overcome their issues. I really love the moment in Inception, though, because Inception seems to be aware of how the way that Cobb operates in the world may not benefit him best because there's that moment where Ariadne basically says like if you're gonna go on this mission without me you have to tell the other guys at least Arthur what is happening in your head and in your heart that could you know be pretty uh, detrimental to the mission and instead of doing that he decides to just take Ariadne instead even though he promised he wouldn't and he knows how dangerous it would be he would much rather risk all mm-hmm. of that then open up to this guy he works with about what he's dealing with who's implied to be like his closest friend yeah yeah you have to show arthur and instead it's we need another ticket <laughs> oh gosh although they have to come to terms with it in the warehouse and and just the way the movie is able to use the tension of the lines that it draws in that okay 
we know they have a sedative, so they can't just die and get out of it. That's going to send them to limbo. And it's one level of terrifying when they're talking about it in the warehouse and they're dealing with projections of the warehouse weaponized. still in the dream right yes not the not the warehouse we're, we're in dream level dream one well, when i was looking up trivia on this it's a lot of your yeah, beaded locations apparently i think it was japan they had a version of the movie where in the upper left hand corner they have to they show you what dream level it is just so you can keep track of everything uh, i would appreciate that yeah so the warehouse dream level one after they've run into the train after they've run into projections that have automatic weapons and saito's been shot and they're trying to regroup and we learn oh yeah we can't die here because we'll just get sent down into limbo. And because of the sedative, we could potentially be here for a week, which means every single one of us will die. So you get your stakes there. Then they get brought to another level when they use the fact that, oh, Fisher has had training of how to deal with extractors, but maybe we can use that to our advantage. But with that knowledge comes him knowing, oh, if I just die in the dream, I'll wake up and putting a gun to his own temple in the second dream level and... Cobb watching and reacting and trying to talk him out of it. Meanwhile, the audience is just going, because <gasps> yeah. that could completely destroy the whole mission. Cobb's a pretty lucky guy, because just as much as he risked by telling Maul in the first place, by incepting her in the first place, that your reality isn't real and you should do this, he really uh, keeps all of his information pretty close to the chest at the peril of the lives of those around him. And it only isn't a consequence because he got lucky. Yeah. And everybody else did a good job at doing their jobs. I mean, at any point, all of them could have been shot Mm -hmm. and just they're all down in limbo. Yep. That moment's also a good setup and payoff because Fisher does ultimately end up getting shot (laughs) once we get down to level three. Yeah. Oh, my word. So in a way, he learned some lessons, but not all of them. (laughs) He's still willing to jeopardize other people in pursuit of what he believes is right or necessary well and to get him back to his kids i mean that's where Cobb is willing to take risks and cross lines that the rest of the team isn't even aware of let alone on board with yeah but they're all in the same boat he takes away that decision from them yeah these two were fun to parallel they're completely different viewing experiences but oh my word it's it's but fun yeah, to unpack basically the same movie yeah, yeah same movie but different and we each got to come into this with at least Maybe one that's mo- why yeah. there's so much movie in each of these movies, because they're in each other. Whoa. <laughs> it's a movie within a movie. Within a movie about a movie and another movie in a dream. And thinking back to an earlier conversation, if nine is the first dream level and Inception is the second, perhaps the third is Tropic Thunder. <laughs> In the merry month of June, from me home I started, left the girls at two, nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kiss me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears to smother, then up to reap the corn, reap where I was born, that does not my corn, to banish ghosts and goblins of sand and bear of ropes, cattling o'er the boats, striking all the dogs on the rocky road to Dublin, what to drink for fighting, cut the hair and turn her down the rocky road, all the way to Dublin, whack for lolly Such a pity to be so soon deprived. 
life a few of that fine city was then I took a stroll all among the quality bundle it was stole all in the locality something crossed me mind when I looked behind what book could I find upon me stick a wobbling inquiring for the rock said me cannot book was he much in rock on the rocky road to double and one two three four five hunt the hare and turn her down the rocky road all the way to double and white for lolly was the rocky road to dublin from the ragtag bunch thank you Stephen, for everything you do with that wonderful group it has been wonderful to hear so many of the ragtag bunch's songs on our episodes and you can always hear the ragtag bunch the last thursday of the month at jk o'donnell's in fort wayne for the spotlight for this episode we're going to hear from chad chenoweth he and i are discussing a batman book from scott snyder the black mirror chad welcome Good to see you. Thank you for having me. For context, I think the first thing we should probably discuss is just to what extent, as we have overlapped, whether it was when I was a student at Bishop Dwanger, you are still a teacher there and were when I was a student, then I was your assistant coach for the speech team, you were the head coach, and now still friends to this day, and throughout all of that, there's always been pop culture woven into our conversations, and uh, we definitely get to talk about a little pop culture day for Storytelling Breakdown. Certainly, yeah. I know you saw us through uh, really the rise of our team. And I mean, you were there. We were running uh, many different stories. Many pop culture references made their way in. So I think that's really been the undercurrent of our friendship and our working relationship as well. And close to both of us, of course, is the character of Batman. And my time as a student at Bishop Dwanger, I remember in high school, was like right smack in the middle of my most active period of being a comic book buyer and collector (laughs) and the majority of the books that I was interested in at that time uh, were Batman both what was going on currently in the continuity so at that point we're kind of looking at 08 09 all the way up to around like 13 and 14 I think was when I stopped regularly collecting and then also going back and getting a lot of old stories from the Bronze Age and out of the turn of the 21st century here and getting as many different comic book stories that we think of as being iconic classics whether we're talking about no man's land or hush or of course year one and other ones that are some of the most significant batman stories to this day that continue to inspire other forms of media for the character 
I think you might have been the first person to push me in the direction of Scott Snyder's work, and he's someone we want to focus on today. To give some further context on that, too, I remember the first time you were a Batman fan is uh, you made a reference to Batman the Animated Series, uh, Which Way to the Eating Place. It was a, a riddle um, from one of the episodes buried in the, in the episode. And I said, I think that's from a Batman the Animated Series episode. And you're like, exactly. And I think that's when we first discovered that about each other. And first episode with the Riddler. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I still have that collection on DVD, although it's uh, my son and I still stream the, the, the episodes. Uh, but you mentioned Scott Snyder. And I first ran into Scott Snyder with his uh, work, uh, Voodoo Heart, which was a collection of short stories and I loved those I considered adapting them for speech although the content didn't really match up with competition and then I think I first mentioned Scott Snyder to you with American Vampire now American Vampire is still going it just wrapped up its its series I think about a year ago so it's been going for about a decade the original story um, it was a dual story one written by Snyder one written by Stephen King and I knew this was going to be a great work. It's based on an author that I knew. And then I realized he was taking on Batman. And I had to tell you about it. <laughs> I guess the rest is history, because now many argue Scott Snyder is among the pantheon of great Batman writers. Yeah, and understandably so. It we're, it's not the book we're going to talk about today, but it, whether it's uh, long form on any of the books, uh, pre-New uh, 52 and Rebirth and all the different reboots that have happened in the last decade or so, uh, you had, of course, his work on Detective Comics. He also uh, did an amazing miniseries, The Gates of Gotham. Of course. Which I realized kind of predates some of the Batman meets old school steampunk aesthetic that we right. got in Arkham City. <laughs> right. And feels very similar and also delving into old history of Gotham with the Waynes, the Elliots, and the Cobblepots and just those old family ideas and a lot of things that continue to be a part of Batman media across the board. I think something we always agreed about is that Scott Snyder respects Gotham. He understands that Gotham City is a character in the Batman mythos. And you see those writers that just don't get that. The thing is just a backdrop. But he did so much with that. I know um, some other comic book fans I speak with, they still insist Court of Owls is among, you know, one of their favorite storylines, uh, one of their favorite villains uh, within the Batman mythos. And, and I get it because it does play deeply into the history of the city that mirrors New York City, something that's both Americana, but also, like you said, has those elements that pull from that steampunk aspect that you can't really pinpoint the date. You know, it, sometimes you're in Gotham City and there are people with smartphones, yet it still feels like the 1920s. And I love that aesthetic. Obviously one that uh, we associate as well with Batman the Animated Series when you have police zeppelins flying over the city or just all sorts of different elements that definitely make Gotham feel, I mean, if not timeless kind of out of time kind of frozen in time in some respects uh, in, in certain ways oh yeah i remember watching uh, the first scarecrow episode where they were betting on the football teams and the football players literally wearing helmets from like the you know 1920s barely padding anything like okay i see what you're doing even you know watching that growing up i loved that aspect he has a line in that that's like i'm not gonna leave this in <laughs> but it's like pure alliteration it's like there's enough poison in that pack to panic a pantoderm i do remember that vividly <laughs> Yes. Which is pre-Scarecrow redesign because I love the Jeffrey Combs version of uh, New yes. Adventures. Of oh, course. goodness. But uh, that was one of the, my first experience with the Scarecrow because I had been, you know, only watching the animated series. I was a kid at that point. Never really hit graphic novels till I was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. So first graphic novel I ever read was um, The Killing Joke. Jesus. 
Uh, and that really is what I think pulled me into the Batman mythos and in in comics and how much more you can get away with, how much more you can convey with those pages. And I loved it. I guess I already talked about some of my favorites as we're leading into our conversation about the specific book that we each have our own copy of sitting next to us. What are some other favorite Batman stories of yours from comics, from other media that, that stand out uh, that maybe feel very similar to Black Mirror and hit some of the same beats or could be coming at things from a completely different approach? Yeah, I mean, I have rows upon rows of Batman graphic novels, and I have storylines that I particularly like. Some that are more obscure, some that I, I think are quite well known. Uh, one I'll mention is Batman Cult. Mm. Uh, and that's you. You have to was it um, Deacon Blackfire? Deacon. It was if Deacon. I, I was correctly. sure of the term. It was Blackfire, yeah. but Deacon Blackfire essentially brainwashes Batman. It was the first time I really saw like, wow, okay, like this could happen to to, to Batman, and he can come back from it. I always love Black Masks. So War Drums, City of Crime. There's a there's a whole like uh, th- that series. I love that. But yeah, as you look at the more modern authors, I guess if we're talking about that. Scott Snyder really is the premier Batman author for me. And I know that's tough because I look at you and I know you're a Grant Morrison fan. <laughs> um, never really thought he hit the levels yeah, I'm of an, Scott Snyder. I'm an old school Grant Morrison fan. Like Batman Gothic, which is from like 1990. Of course. Be, might be my favorite thing he's done with the characters. And that feels very much in line with some of the other kind of film noir bronze age batman that we got with the likes of the long halloween and other contemporaries if you're asking my favorite batman stories killing jokes up there and i have the original like 19 you know like not to nerd out too much (laughs) but no i mean i had the originals from like when you know batman 27 first came out not authentic of course for reproductions but the introduction of the joker is very well done ed brubaker of course does that a modern retelling of it that is beautiful but anytime you see that where the joker is really done the right way i'm huge fan and i'll wrap up with one last one uh batman venom mm-hmm. uh really shows you that batman is both internally and externally strong but i mean the list can go on i think i could be calling you this evening with like five or six more stories but i'll cap it off at that but so far as authors are concerned i really do feel like scott snyder is my favorite batman author ed brubaker would be a second to that then if we're really going old school i could drop some other names too anything in which the joker is used well and ironically in the black mirror he's practically a decoy and just yeah. it's the, there are so many things this story does well and one that you and i were talking about before we turned on the mics was just to what extent the b plot becomes the a plot and Agreed. the way the whole thing is woven together is just really really well done the way it's layered so much like you said you you start reading it you're thinking like okay you get an idea of who the, who the antagonist is going to be and then as they start to leave that thread behind and you start following another line, it really does play with the audience expectations in the best way possible. Some of the most memorable Batman stories have an empty victory. They have a resolution. I mean, gra- and granted, that's definitely a part of comic book storytelling. The villain gets away. You're going to pick up the next issue and to see where the story goes in the future. And so you have an ending that's, is kind of haunting and very much like makes me feel if I can take us back to when we were talking about uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? The introduction to the Riddler from the animated series that also has the empty victory because at the end of the episode, the Riddler escapes and you have Batman's 
monologue over the top of Mockridge, like locking his doors, going around his house with a shotgun, Shivering. terrified that the Riddler is yes. still out there, and it's just and has that line of the, "How much is a good night's sleep worth?" Yes, just, as oh, they fade so out, good. pull back. I can visualize it perfectly. It, similar feelings here, to be yeah. sure. I would say that books rarely frighten me, I, and I don't. I don't frighten very easily when it comes to fiction. I think we have enough in the real world to do that. But when we look at fiction, very rarely would I say that I'm scared by annual films because I, I'm very grounded in reality. Yet I can think of authors like horror authors I love. I love Lovecraft. Uh, you know, never scared me. It's more of an interest than anything. It may be haunting is the best word for it. Read Stephen King. I think it's interesting. His son, Joe Hill, man, uh, if you like, uh, I, I would say he's probably one of the scariest authors I've ever read. Heart Shaped Box comes to mind there, and he's done his own work with Lock and Key. Now he has Hill House Comics. I mm -hmm. dropped that or reference for him. But this book, Black Mirror, is one of those frightening things I've ever read. And not just because of the ending. I would argue the opening at the auction house is one of the most terrifying scenes to me as well. You have Batman. He thinks he's in control. He's suddenly not in control. And Snyder's very clear when he lays it out that these are not supernatural beings. These are just ordinary citizens. But the fact they're all clawing at him, attacking him, all at once, without any provocation without any subversion it's just the fact that pure evil exists in our world and always will and i just found that terrifying <laughs> i'm paging back through and getting chills because there are visual motifs from this book that i forgot it's been a while since i've read it oh my goodness this book comes out in such an interesting time because so much of the main batman books at that point whether we're leading into Batman Incorporated and it's right before we're about to get the reset for the new 52 and it would have been very easy for any books at that point to just be overloaded with continuity which is obviously part of what I think leads to the the new 52 at that point this book doesn't carry any of that weight at all I mean no. you come in from any point at all and it's an amazing Batman story yeah, I, I think that's the beauty of it. And I mean, we're, we both know the history. I mean, there are references to year one that go in this. Uh, of course, the, the return of Bruce Wayne is referenced. Damien Wayne is referenced. All these things that people in the know would catch. References to the, the big families like the Falcones. Tony Zuko is referenced. His daughter makes an appearance. It really is both terrifying, but also a swan song. A, a reference to so much that we as Batman fans love. But you don't have to have that to appreciate it. It's just a 10-issue set that anybody could pick up and immediately access. And it's just beautifully done because I would argue things that happen in issue one play in perfectly to issue 10 when you don't even expect them. I think the plotting of the story, so well done because there's those little details. If you love a detect, I would say it's more of a mystery in that sense too. The little details in the early going come back you may think you've lost a thread no snyder's biding his time to come back to it you and i are both going through this with the goal being not to spoil a book so again Absolutely. batman the black mirror a wonderful story that stands on its own that showcases scott snyder who has become one of the best batman writers i mean i'd say of the era if but he's quickly getting into the conversation regardless of era if you go across the board well, yeah, and I mean, he's even responsible now for, and, and again, I'm still a high school teacher. I still talk to high school students. My finger's on the pulse. They are all huge <laughs> fans of the Batman Who Laughs. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that really is becoming the next really moving saga of this generation. I think it's running out of steam at this point. I think they keep going back to the well. But if you go back to you know to Dark Knight's Metal, the Batman Who Laughs, Snyder's behind that too. I think when he's done, he will very clearly be the best Batman author we've ever seen. And I think this is still his best work. This concludes the spoiler-free portion of this conversation as it relates to the Black Mirror. What are some of the aspects of this book that really make it stick with you and feel free to go wherever in the plot that you want to? Yeah, I feel like the gloves are off now. Really, this book is about evil. Uh, so much of it. And and the redemption of evil, or does it stay with you? Uh, one of the lines that really stands out to me is, I think it's the second issue, he talks about how Gotham City is constantly changing. And if you're not careful, you, you know, it'll, it'll catch up to you. But notice the references to evil throughout. You know, the people at the auction house who willingly go in to bid on these awful items and, and, and literally and explicitly celebrate evil. You look at characters like James Gordon Jr., who is, is a psychopath, chooses evil. I mean, he literally has the chance to take a pill that will help him overcome his psychopathy. But after taking it, decides, no, psychopathy is superior to those who are considered normal and then alters it to further build it. Uh, I think the most creepy scene for me, though, is that James Gordon, trying to scare his son straight, has him spend the night at Arkham and he befriends the Joker. A serial killer meets James Gordon and literally says, I saw him, you know, James Gordon, and I, I guess I should be clear if you haven't read it. I mean, when we talk about James Gordon Jr., that is, you know, his son Gordon's going back son. all the way to Batman Year, Year One when one. he's a baby that Batman rescues after he gets thrown off a bridge. Yeah, and just the idea of so much there. And I, I, I know for me, too, it was guilt. Uh, I know James Gordon feels like, is he responsible? Did he, you know, in some way make this happen? And I think it's asking the wrong question, but I'm sorry. It's just the, the elements of evil. And I'm, I'm rambling. So I'm going to say this one last thing. We talk about evil. Uh, the character of Tony Zuko is referenced because his daughter is a successful, uh, you know, banker. And it talks about her. And does the legacy of evil continue? And they make it complex. They don't make it. Yes, she's good. Or yes, she's bad. It's like, she's good, but she's cutthroat too. And just that idea of evil and the city is left so vague, but so distraught. And I mean, of course, that ending, that ending by far is one of the bleakest endings you're ever going to see. There's no downtime. It's not like, okay, we got to fill in some plot here. No, every page is used to the point where the opening scene with the dealer, who you think is going to be the primary antagonist, but at the end is just an afterthought. And then the audience who is there, except James Gordon Jr., who had been plotting all of this, the mastermind behind everything. And I noticed when I first read it, I'm like, wow, they never really tell you how Batman is saved from the auction house. And I'm like, man, that's kind of a strike against that. I would have preferred more detail. Only to get it in issue 10 at the very end, you realize it's our primary antagonist playing with him, biding his time, because he wants to do it on his terms. I remember, and this was maybe how young I was when I started collecting comics, the the palette of a younger comic book fan, it took me a while to get used to Jock's artwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, like seeing it in covers in certain places, but going in an entire book might have felt like a bit much. But his work in Black Mirror is just phenomenal. 
and just so many of the interesting visual motifs and, and, and the things that he's able to do. It's perfect. And I first was introduced to Jock when he paired with Scott Snyder on American Vampire. And they're very, I know the similarities because the way he, um, Jock draws the vampires is quite perverse. You know, it's not your standard vampire, much more monstrous, long fingers and claws. And in the opening scene, when I saw the boy transform into a killer croc type character, I'm like, yep, here we go. This is going to be good. I, well, and, and that reminds me of something else, too, that comes to mind for me, is that as someone who has spent most of his life doing English and language and literature, you can't talk down about comic books when you read The Black Mirror. And, you know, it, it opens with Dick Grayson talking about how his family had a map and would put pins in for certain cities. You know, red for small cities, blue for big cities, but black pen for Gotham. Gotham, you let out all the stops. And of course, the parallel structure before the final battle and encounter, he references that again. Scott Snyder, more than any other comic book author, and he's among the greats as well, plots out his story in such a way that he knows where the story's going and rewards the reader who pays attention. And in some ways parallels that journey because when it comes to telling stories of Batman and stories of Gotham, he pulls out all the stops. A hundred percent. Chad, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful to reminisce uh, about an absolutely amazing Batman comic. I need to, I need to reread it very soon here. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps storytelling breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. The Dark Knight Rises was at least referenced as we talked about Marianne Cotillard works from the late 2000-aughts, early 2010s. And we just heard a Batman-centered spotlight. Next month, we are going to have a very Batman-centered episode coming to you earlier than you would normally expect one of our episodes. Normally, we shoot for the last Friday of each month for our standard episode release. That said, September 5th, 2022 is the 30th anniversary of Batman the Animated Series. We will have an episode on that topic on that day. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. WSP, Wayne Shout Productions.
Wayne Schultz.